Father, I do thank you as always for a beautiful morning and beautiful facility for the service and the giving of so many people, Lord, that you've called one by one to be here. And by that calling, Father, we have gathered in your name and become the body of Christ, gathered to give you glory, to hear your word, to be built up in the faith, and to be made ready for ministry, Father, to be made ready in service to you. And let us devote ourselves, Father, to that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Encourage us to put aside all the distractions of our life, the many things, Father, that do consume our thoughts day to day, if only for the hour we have here. Lord, I pray that those distractions would be put aside, that the Holy Spirit, by the power that only he has, uh, could focus our minds and our hearts on the word, on its truth, and that the message, Father, that you have in this word for us this morning would be made real, it would be made personal. It would not be a message, Father, for the person sitting next to us, but it would be for us. And in that, Father, we would gain uh, what only the Word can provide, Father, the, the truth, the light, the opportunity, Father, to be changed, to be made like you, to serve you. Because, Father, more than anything, we desire that even in these days as we await our glorification in your presence, we could have a taste, Father, of heaven even now, the, the taste of a life without sin, the taste, Father, of a life spent in time of glory and praise to you, a time, Father, when we would know you as we desire, knowing you truthfully, Father, wholly. Because, Father, in this world, so many things will draw our attention away from you and lead us to think things that aren't true. And we long for that day, Father, when all those things are gone, all that remains is you and the truth and our, our new life in your presence. And... Uh, in the word today, Father, we hope to find just a measure of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last week we examined in Luke, the first part of Luke 8, the parable of the sower and the four seeds. I, uh, I try to resist the temptation to urge people to go listen to things I've taught in the past because I know as I even say the words, they always come out sounding very egotistical. You know, you need to go listen to what I taught. You need to go hear something that we did and and I'm sure for the most part, people say, yeah, yeah, whatever. You always say that. Uh, and maybe I do. But I think last week's teaching was an important one. I'm going to build on that this week. If you did miss it, I do encourage you to let me know. I'm happy to provide a copy to you or you can get it off the web as always. It was a long teaching, I'll admit. I went back and as I noted the length of the, the recording, it was a full hour of me talking, uh, which is more than I normally do. It reminds me of the definition of a good sermon that I once heard from a gentleman. He said, a good sermon should have a good beginning, they should have a good end, and they should be as close together as possible. And I'm going to try a little harder this week uh, to do that. Of course, that's why we do serve coffee downstairs. It helps keep you awake on the drive home. We want to make sure everybody's safe, so we, we do provide coffee. This week, I'm going to put those two pieces a little closer together, as I said. Not quite a full hour, certainly. But we do need to build on what we taught last week, because we left off in some verses that I never really spent any time expositing, going through in depth. And it's in those verses that we get an important piece of detail out of what we taught last week. So we have to come back in at the very end of what we did last week, even as we move forward. Last week, as we looked at the parable, we were paying close attention to all its details, because it was in the details that we gained a clear understanding of its meaning, despite the fact that many people misinterpret that parable. I think we were able to look at it in a truthful way by looking at the details. And if you remember, we said that you could break this parable down by essentially dividing it into two halves. And each half could itself be divided into two parts. Mathematicians call this a Latin square. 
And so if you know what I'm talking about, the parable of the four seeds, the, four, the sower and the four seeds, is a Latin square. In mathematics, when you talk a Latin square, you're saying you have two conditions that are intersected with two conditions and ending up with four parts. And that's what you have in this parable. You had the first half of the parable, conditions one and two, we called it, the two types of soil that did not result in life. We said these were pictures of unbelievers. We said that one group was an unbeliever in the case of the first condition who made no attempt to hide their disinterest for the word of God. They were unbelievers and proud of it and made it known. They had a hard heart and no interest in changing. The second group of unbelievers actually left the impression of being a believer, at least at first. But after some time, a trial besets them or some test of faith comes upon them. And in that, they reveal the lack of a root. They reveal that they were never actually true believers, but fall away easily, showing their true nature in the time of trial. But in the second half of the parable, we had conditions three and four. Now, this half are conditions that reflect believers. But again, you have two different kinds of manifestations of being a believer, just like the unbelievers do. In the fourth condition, for example, we jumped to the last one first and looked at the fourth condition because it's very obvious there you had a mature believer. You had one who demonstrated their ability to reproduce their faith in others, and that being the perfect sign of maturity, the ability to bear fruit, in other words, in that way. And specifically, we said things like spreading the gospel message, teaching the Bible, being one who provides the seed through whom God will bring more faith. But the most troubling condition and the one we wanted to spend some time on last week and again this week was condition number three, the condition three Christian, I call them, C3 Christian, if you will, the believer who never produces fruit, who never moves to that stage of maturity where they can produce fruit. When you were listening to the parable last week, you may have been wondering, what was the point? I mean, we can understand it. We can gain the benefit of the detail, perhaps. But why did Jesus tell the parable? What was his primary purpose in telling it? Well, you may have assumed it was merely to explain the fact that you'll have varying degrees of response to the word of God. You'll have four ways people respond to hearing the word of God. And that's true. That's certainly a worthwhile lesson out of the parable. But that's not the main point. The main point is not simply to acknowledge that there are four kinds of responses. After all, what are we to do about the fact that two out of the four are unbelievers? We can't convince someone to be a Christian. That's not how it works. So it doesn't help us to know the very fact. It's simply informational. Likewise, if you're the fourth condition, well, what is there to learn in that? You're already where God wants you to be. Really, the only condition of the four that holds any opportunity for us to learn and then act upon it is condition three. Last week, we read through verse 18, but as I said, I only exposited through verse 15. So we're going to pick up in verse 16 again today and actually explain the verses that we didn't cover last week. Luke 8, verse 16. Now, no one after lighting a lamp covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed, but he puts it on a lampstand so that those who would come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So take care how you listen. For whoever has... To him, more shall be given. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Now, we may not have noticed or maybe not fully appreciated last week, but Jesus is transitioning out of the parable that we studied and up through verse 15. And here in these verses, he's actually making an application from the parable. And then he adds a warning at the end. The 
comparison he makes to a lamp. I want you to understand in Jesus' day, lighting a lamp wasn't easy. Now, I'm not saying it was a huge effort, but I don't want you to have the impression that you might have today, which is you need light, you just go flip a light on and you got light. I mean, you know they didn't have electricity, I understand that. But even the process of lighting an oil lamp, which is what we're talking about here, was not trivial. I mean, on the one hand, how do you get the spark? How do you get the flame? You've got to have flame or you've got to have flint. I mean, in that day, you either had to have an active flame somewhere in the home or you had to make the effort to go start one if you wanted to light your lamp. So that might take a little effort if you weren't already with a flame handy. But even if you had one, secondly, you're burning oil. Now, you and I pay pennies to light a, lamp, a light in a room at home. We, we could, in fact, in most homes today, if you're like my house, unfortunately, you can walk in on any given moment and find lights on all over the house in empty rooms. Why do we do that? Because it costs virtually nothing. If they started making electricity as expensive to light a room as oil was in Jesus' day, I guarantee you our behaviors would change. I guarantee you we'd change. We would be so concerned over lighting lamps and lighting lights, we'd only turn them on when we absolutely needed them. And likewise, that was the case in this day. Oil was not cheap. So if they were going to take the effort to light a lamp, it implied that there was a necessity, a need behind that, and they were willing to make the effort for that need. So it required a little bit of forethought, a little bit of effort. And once it was lit, what do you think they would do with a lamp? Well, as Jesus pointed out in the parable, they're going to place that lamp high somewhere on the lampstand or somewhere in the room where it can light the whole room, get the most value out of it, in other words. They're certainly not going to put it where it's obstructed. They're not going to hang it in a corner. They're going to be very concerned about making the most out of the light they're paying for. Like we do, we put lights in ceilings for that very reason. In fact, as he was talking about this parable, I, I would have to believe that the very fact that he suggests somebody would light a lamp and then cover it over with a container or put it under a bed, it must have made some people chuckle in the audience as he spoke those words because it would have seemed stupid. <laughs> of course, putting it under a bed, that's nonsense, Jesus. Who would do that? So when he says no one after lighting a lamp covers it over or puts it under a bed, then you begin to understand what he's saying now better in the imagery of verse 16. In fact, even if you didn't understand it very well, just from what's written here in Luke, we have Matthew's account. Matthew's account of this same teaching is much clearer in its purpose, in how to interpret it. Listen to these verses out of Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So in Matthew's account, we hear Jesus say that the believers of the world, the church, in other words, they are the light. They've been elevated, he says, like a city on a hill. They've been placed there. You know, you didn't place yourself there. I didn't get myself up on the hill, so to speak. God, by the Holy Spirit, changes hearts, makes us believers and Therefore, in the sense of this parable, puts us on a hill, sets us up high in the world, just like a lamp. You can't help but be noticed. You know, if you were thinking of camping, let's say, I don't know about you, but I've been camping on a few occasions where you have a tent big enough to stand in. Back in the military, we used to do things called a bivouac. It's a military term for going out in the woods and acting like you're a Boy Scout again and, and getting dirty and living under tents and eating food you wouldn't normally eat and, you know, doing all kinds of things that, you know, you don't tell mom about later. And out there in this camping environment, when you're in these tents, they light them often with these lanterns. Now, typically today, it's going to be either propane-powered or electric, but it's the same idea. Hang a light up in the top of the tent, right? And 
If you have that light there in that tent, the last thing you want to have anyone do is obstruct it. Because the second it's obstructed, you're in pitch black darkness. It's a stark thing. Have you ever been in that situation? It's not like in here where the light's diffused. It's very stark. It's, it's like a beam of light. And it can be easily obstructed. And he says, God is shining that kind of a light into the world through us. Now, what does he mean by light? Obviously not physical light. We're not glowing. What does he mean? Well, he means the light of the truth. The light of the truth of his word, to be more specific. Talking truth, exhibiting truth, living out truth in a world that doesn't understand what truth is, doesn't realize the world around them is a lie. We are the ones, therefore, who are supposed to demonstrate the power of God to save and to transform. We are the ones who are supposed to fulfill that purpose. Like Matthew says, to glorify the Father. Ultimately, to glorify the Father. Why do you think he felt the need to end the parable like he did? Why do you think he went to verses 16, 17, and 18 and said what he said? Saying that we shouldn't hide light. You know, the parable wasn't about light. The parable wasn't about hiding anything. And yet he ends with that warning. It seems he's concerned that Christians actually might not want the world to know they're Christians. Doesn't that seem to be his concern? That Christians might actually be hiding themselves in some sense? That that the city on a hill might be trying to avoid being noticed? Otherwise, why would he give the warning? And that's the main point of the parable. Now we understand why he told the parable. He didn't tell the parable because we're supposed to fix condition one. He didn't tell the parable because we're supposed to find the condition two people and kick them out of the church. He didn't tell us about the parable so that we could pat ourselves on the back for being condition four. He told the parable because he's concerned about the condition three Christian. Because the condition three Christian is the one hiding his lamp under the bed. He's the one who's been elevated by God as a city on a hill and is doing everything they can to avoid people noticing. Condition three Christians have always existed. Always. They exist today. They withhold their witness from the world. They withhold that light Christ is talking about. Remember from the parable how we described the condition three Christian out of the details of the parable? It was that plant that was growing up in good soil. It was obviously good enough to grow the plant, but it was also growing weeds and thorns, and they were choking out the plant. And if you remember, we said that as the parable described those thorns and and Weeds as the pleasures of the world, the cares of the world, the distractions of the world. And we said that plant, biologically speaking, a plant under those conditions won't produce any seed or any fruit. Not because they're being poisoned, not because there's not enough soil, but because there's not enough energy. You know, for a plant, energy is sunlight and water. But if there's weeds growing up above it and choking out the sunlight, or if they're absorbing too much of the water around the plant, it doesn't have enough energy left to produce fruit. All it has enough energy to do is keep itself alive. Just maintaining itself requires all the available energy, and when it needs that extra amount of energy to produce fruit, to reproduce, it can't find it. Because all these other things, these thorns, these weeds, they're sucking up any additional energy that might have been available. Just like this plant, then, Condition three Christians barely have enough energy, spiritually speaking, for anyone else beyond themselves. They can barely manage to keep themselves alive, spiritually speaking. So a condition three Christian, just like the plant, they have no time to mature into a 
full-fledged Christian, one who could produce fruit. They have no energy. They have no desire. They have no commitment because they are distracted. Because there's too much attractiveness in the world around them. There's too much importance in the things they have going on in their lives. There's too much demand on them from all the other things that the world says they should be doing. And there's no energy left for spiritual development. What they have, they use exclusively for themselves. And that's the key here. I want you to notice, I'm not talking about someone who does nothing, spiritually speaking. The plant is not doing nothing. The plant is growing. The plant is living. So a Christian like that, I want to call them sort of self-centered Christianity. Christians who are self-focused. They are growing. I mean, remember the plant couldn't produce any fruit because it only had enough energy for itself. Only enough sunlight, only enough water. Similarly, a condition three Christian, if you will, they squander their time, their resources and their energy on the cares of the world. And then they only have enough left over for what they need to do to kind of maintain themselves spiritually. So we're talking here about things like you know, going to church when it fits their schedule or attending a Bible study now and then or, you know, maybe tithing when the budget allows or whatever the things are they think they need to do as a Christian, they do it, but they kind of do it just to the extent they themselves feel good that they're doing the minimum for themselves. They're keeping alive. They're staying engaged at some level. But there's no fruit in that. I mean, they may look at themselves and say, well, I've matured, I've grown, I've done this and that. Well, that's fine. That's part of what we all need to do. But that is only a means to an end. That is not the end in itself. To simply be a field of plants, nice and leafy green, living for ourselves and no fruit on any of the plants is considered a worthless harvest. The farmer burns that down, as Christ tells elsewhere in the gospel, and he replants and he starts over. Because there's been no fruit. A Christian who simply gets himself into heaven. And I don't mean by works, of course. I simply mean in in being a Christian. is, Is a Christian that offers no value to Christ in the way this parable is being told. They are selfish because they only devote enough spiritual energy to themselves. And all those things we may do, going to church, tithing, Bible studies, those are all fine and good things. But they're means to an end. And that end is producing fruit. We can all slip into this lifestyle. And at times in our lives, maybe outside needs, family needs, other needs, will drive us into this, this, this kind of pattern. So the pattern itself is not the enemy. The problem is when we make the pattern the goal. When we're satisfied with that pattern. When that pattern is all that we see life requiring. So what is the fruit then? If we're saying to ourselves, this is not the right approach, we want to be a Christian that produces fruit. Well, what is the fruit that a Christian should produce? We said a little of this last week. Well, in the context of the parable, we're not talking about the kind of fruit that, say, Paul talks about in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy. That's a different issue. We're not talking about wanting to show the world that we have matured and we have a life of love and peace and joy. That's true. We want to do that. But that's a means to an end. The end, as Matthew taught, was what? Glorifying the Father by the works we do in showing the light. That's the goal. Now, the fruit is spreading the seed of God, spreading the word of God, teaching, preaching, or funding the spreading of the word of God, or in some way evangelizing the unbelievers to become faithful, bringing the gospel to the unbelievers. And that's the point of the parable. First, we shouldn't be content to allow ourselves to be a condition three Christian. That's the first message. 
Don't be content with that. Number two, we all start there, certainly, but we shouldn't stay there. We shouldn't keep our light hidden. We shouldn't be satisfied to be, I guess you could call it a closet Christian. We should be looking to show the world our faith in a demonstrative way. And then to do that, we have to be willing to recognize that the culture we're surrounded with devotes too much time to the wrong things, including in some cases the wrong spiritual things, and we need to be willing to divorce ourselves from that pattern, to stand out from that pattern. For example, let me ask you this. Do you know, how would you know a Christian at your job or your workplace? Think of people where you are. Think of people in your surrounding neighborhood, for example. How do you know who the Christians are? I'll bet you, and I don't know if this is the case for all of you, but I'll bet you if your life is like mine, you'll know the Christians not by their ability to reproduce so much. You'll know them by what they aren't willing to do or what they protest against or what they stand against. It's all negative. The Christians are the ones who won't watch certain television programs. The Christians are the ones who won't go to certain movies. The Christians are the ones who won't participate in certain festivals or certain parties or do wear certain clothes. And all of that's fine. I have many of those don'ts on my list too. But if that's the only way they know we're Christian, we're not producing fruit. We're not producing new seed. The problem here isn't our unwillingness to participate in the culture. I'm not advocating 100% drive in and participate in the culture, obviously. It's that that's the only thing we do to stand out. That's the sum total of our Christian witness. Wouldn't it be nice if Christians stood out rather than for those reasons, but because they produced fruit? My, my pet peeve of the season, I'm sure you're dying to know. How many people right now are protesting against stores or, or you know, different businesses because they won't celebrate Christmas with the word Christmas? They want to see Christmas signs, not holiday signs. Okay, that's fine. How many of those people, though, spend even one hour preaching the gospel to the neighbor down the street? If you're really interested in seeing Christmas being projected to our culture, what are we doing to actually bring Christ to the people around us, no, we'd rather stand in front of stores and rail against them for not having Christmas on their signs. I mean, the point I'm making here, of course, is that all the energy we're willing to devote in that region, and how much are we really willing to devote to do the basics of what the gospel says Christians should be doing? Producing fruit is nothing more than glorifying God by our works to the benefit of the unbeliever, to bringing those into the kingdom of God, to spreading more seed. And that's not something we do very often. Look at what he says in verse 17 of Luke. Nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not become known and come to light. So take care how you listen, for whoever has to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have even what he thinks he has will be taken away. What Jesus is telling us is if we're content to leave our witness buried, if the words I'm speaking right here go in one ear and out the other, if we read the words on this page and we go home and say, that was nice, what are we doing this afternoon, honey? If there's no change, if we're content to leave our witness buried, to fail to produce fruit, to remain a condition three Christian, Jesus warns us that there will be no secrets one day, one day to come. All things will be known. The, believer, the unbelievers will be known for who they are, yes. But the Christians themselves will also be known for what they did or didn't do. All their work will be tested. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. 
and another built is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Now, no man can lay a foundation other than, other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, the foundation here is faith in Christ. Absent that foundation, there is no work. But once there's a foundation of belief in Christ, now you have the beginning of something. You notice that? No one builds a foundation and says, we're finished. That's the start. Then he goes on. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it. What day is he talking about? The day Christ is talking about. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Now, the foundation won't go away, because you didn't build that, so you can't lose it. But what we ought to remember is, Getting the foundation, being content to simply have a, 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 be a card-carrying Christian, having an, a key to get into heaven, that's, that's the starting point. That, that doesn't even take a step. What Christ is saying, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, is that you were saved by your faith, not by your works, to be sure. But there's a lot riding on your works. And I think, as I leave this part of the teaching today, I think one of the problems we have is we live now in this body and in this world in uh, a situation where everything has a beginning and an end. Our life has a beginning and an end. Our jobs have a beginning and an end. Our kids, everything has a beginning and an end. That's the world we live in right now. We can't begin to comprehend what eternity looks like. What eternity is, is a beginning with no end. That's hard to imagine, even as we sit here and try to comprehend it. When we reach the other side of life, when we actually die, as we all will, or are raptured, perhaps, we're going to enter into a time and an age where we come face to face with eternity. No more death, no more end, just endless time, endless, endless time. And Jesus says that what we experience in that immense time is dependent on what we do with this little speck of time we have now. And when we all reach that time to come, as we all will, here's the rule. Whoever has, to him more will be given. Have, have what? Well, fruit, of course. And what will be given? More opportunity. More opportunity to serve, to have responsibility and honor and perhaps some other kind of privilege in, in some form that we don't understand. But Christ says it's a reward. Paul calls it a reward. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But to the one who has nothing, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. What is it this person has nothing of? Fruit. And what does he think he has? Fruit. You notice that? Even what he thinks he has will be taken away. He thinks he's done everything he needed to do. He's sustained himself. He's the plant who grew and made sure he didn't die. But what he thinks he has is nothing. You see, this, the conditions tree Christian just lives a whole life fooling himself. He thinks he's a mainstream Christian. He's a regular guy. He's doing what all the other Christians do. He's... Really just killing time, though, waiting for his reward. The reward he expects to get when he gets to heaven. Of course, he's saved. We know that. I want you to make, I want to make clear here, we're not talking about earning or keeping salvation. That's not a reward. In fact, Scripture never calls salvation a reward. Ever. The word reward and salvation are never equated in Scripture because it's not a reward. Rewards come out of your effort. 
and your salvation did not. Rewards are something beyond your salvation. It's what you earn for the sake of the works you do to glorify God. Now, the condition to be Christian is really just self-deluded. They never really took time to understand what the Word had to say about the expectations of bearing fruit. So their understanding was merely, be a Christian and wait till I die and all the good things follow. Harps and clouds and angels. And if they read the Word, though, they'd realize, no, there's a lot on the line. Your works are weighed. They're, con- they're considered by God at your judgment. And they have a place to, they have a role to play in what happens to you next. So when the fire reveals the quality of our work, those who are found without fruit will have nothing. I hope we take the warning seriously as we leave these verses. And I hope we're not too proud. And I say this frankly to myself. It was a convicting message as I sat and I wrote this out. Many times along the way I wanted to stop, back up, delete, delete, delete. Let's just go somewhere else today. And God kept pulling me back into this. Maybe for my own sake. Maybe more so than anyone else's. I don't know. I just hope we're not too proud to stop in our tracks, reevaluate our lives, see if they measure up to the standard God's giving, and if they don't, be prepared to do something about it. Because if we do nothing, I fear there will come a day when we deeply regret our short-sighted and foolish decisions to favor the needs of the world over those of the next. And then in Luke 8... 19, Luke puts, I guess you'd call it an exclamation point on this teaching. It may seem at first to be unrelated, but he's really putting a nice big punctuation mark at the end of the parable. In Luke 18, he says, or 8:19 rather, he says this, And his mother and brothers came to him, and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. And Jesus answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God. And do it. It's interesting. Matthew and Mark, they place this comment at a different point in Jesus' ministry. They actually place it back at the point where he was being confronted by the Pharisees when the disciples were going through the grain field on the Sabbath, picking the heads of grain. Both of those gospel writers have this event taking place back there. And now, either Luke's careful investigation of the facts, as he stated in the first chapter, Either that investigation brought him to the conclusion that this was the actual place it occurred, or he intended to move it out of that point in time and place it here in order to help make the point of Jesus' parable. Because in, I guess in reality, it really doesn't matter where in time it occurred, the statement stands on its own. Now, it's also apparent as you look at this, the crowds had become so large around Jesus, his mother and his brothers, they couldn't just show up and pat him on the back. <laughs> they had to send word through the crowd to get to Jesus, that they were standing out there wanting to see him. Matthew and Mark actually place this scene in a home where they have to knock on the door, I guess, to get in. But either way, it's going to be a crowd that separates them between Jesus and the parent and his mother and his brothers. Why do you think this is being mentioned here? What do you think the point of this event is? Do you think, for example, that the mother and the brothers are trying to get to Jesus because they want to become his disciples? Do you think they want to join the crowd, start following Jesus like others in the crowd? I doubt it. I mean, we don't know if they've come just to hear his teaching. We don't know if they've come just to see what all the the hubbub is about. I think we can probably assume that they were just amazed at all that had transpired in his life and they'd shown up to try to understand what was going on with good old Jesus. Remember, he went to Nazareth. No one wanted to have anything to do with him. I imagine his own family is really unsure of what to make of these events. So why does Jesus dismiss them in the way he does? And I guess really, to be fair, he's not criticizing them here. There's nothing in the text that suggests he's trying to slight them. 
Some would suggest that maybe his brothers, perhaps even his mother at this point, aren't fully aware of who he is. They may think of him just as a prophet. They may not have fully appreciated he would be the Messiah. I don't tend to favor that. I think the Manificat that we heard Luke record from Mary back when she was pregnant with Elizabeth, that statement out of Mary's mouth seems to suggest to me that she understood that she was giving birth to the Messiah. But even putting that aside, we know the brothers, for the most part, didn't come to believe in him until after he was resurrected. James, for example, the brother of Jesus, talks about having come to faith like everyone else had to. But I don't think it's the case here that Jesus is dismissing the mother and the brothers. In fact, he may have eventually received them. We don't know. But he uses their arrival as a teaching opportunity. He wants to prove a point. I think Luke brings it in at this time for this very reason. He wants to prove a point about what he just said in the parable of the sower and the seed. He said, those who are in his family are those who hear the word of God and do it. He didn't say, those who are in my family are the ones who hear the word of God. He said, they're the ones who hear the word of God and do it. There's a response required. He makes the statement even more clear by saying that those are the ones who are in his family. He compares them to his mother and his brothers. Paul says in Romans 10:17, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Do you remember how much family meant to the Jewish culture? Tribes, the patriarchal system they were under? To disown your family in this public way was scandalous, really. It would have been very disrespectful. It would have, been, it would have seemed very radical. In fact, I'd say it's still radical for people today. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I think he had a loving relationship with his mother. I think he had the normal son-to-mother relationship growing up. I think he had a a degree of affection for his earthly brothers, to be sure. But once Jesus' ministry began in earnest, he saw the things of earth with an appreciation that there was an eternity waiting. Remember, he knew he had existed before Mary was even born. And he existed before Adam was born. Right? So... Jesus is sitting there looking at this earthly woman and these earthly men who are, by earth standards, mother and brothers, and he's looking at them and he's realizing, we're not truly related in the way you see us. You see us in this earthly way, but there's an eternity through which I can see things. And the sense of eternity tells me that I define my family on a different basis than merely blood relationships. Because those blood relationships only last as long as the blood does. The relationships that matter to Jesus are spiritual and they are eternal. And he knew that relationship was the one that mattered. There is no one who can say they're born a Christian. No one. There is no one who can say they're born into Jesus' family. It doesn't work that way. I grew up calling myself a Christian. And to be more specific, I called myself a Catholic. And I can, def- I can remember this distinctly. When people would challenge me as to whether I was truly a Christian, I'd be terribly offended at that. How can they say, I'm not a Christian? I'm a Catholic. I was born a Catholic. My parents were Catholic. That's how it works, right? How are they to tell me who I am or who I'm not? What Jesus is saying right here is, I was wrong. What Jesus is saying here is, those who hear the word of God and do it are his family, and on no other basis does he have family. The word for hear in the Greek here, akuo, Akuo simply means listen, but it means as in take heed. Hearing as in taking heed of the words. Not just hearing and receiving, but then doing. And those are the ones who are in the family of God. Let's uh, leave the teaching today fully aware of what Jesus, the Lord of the creation, is demanding of us out of the parable and out of the application. First, 
he implores us, join his family, yes. Join as a matter of faith. Faith in his word. Faith in who he claims to be. Faith that his provision on the cross saves us. Yes, that's a first step. That's the foundation. Absent that, the rest of it I don't even need to talk about. But once that foundation exists, once we've responded to the gift of salvation, it's then our responsibility to grow into a point of maturity where we can bear fruit. To spread the seed of the word of God. And it can be done in creative ways. It can be done through uh, the ministry we saw last night, for example, uh, with Ken's drama group. You know, we're not talking about this role and this role alone. It can be done in the way you lead your child in Bible study at home. It can be done in the way you talk to your neighbor next door and invite them to dinner and discuss the scripture over dinner with them one night. It can be done any way God opens a door. But if you've never taken that step or you don't think about that step, then I would challenge you to consider whether or not there is seed, whether there is fruit in your walk. Rather than, say, spend 90 minutes per week on the things of God in this room, why not try to spend the other 9,990 minutes, and that's what it is, by the way, in a week. Interesting how that works, isn't it? Why not spend the rest of that time? Instead of 90 minutes here and the other 9,990 minutes are for ourselves, why don't we see how much we can reverse that ratio? See how close we can get it so that either they're equal or, heaven forbid, they actually flip. And let's make sure our effort is directed toward others and not just ourselves. For this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We've been saved so that we might live for him. Father, we go out of this teaching today and a recognition that the Word of God is a two-edged sword. And even as I preach, Father, the two edges are made real. One, perhaps, Father, to cut into the hearts of those who hear the message as you see fit. But likewise, Father, the other side, to cut even me as I deliver it. How many things, Father, in our week to come have we already set on our calendar with an eye toward what pleases us. And how many things, Father, have we given time for in service to you, in spreading the word, in ministering to the needs of others? We fear not enough, Father. Not enough for others and too much for ourselves. That is the walk of this world. It's the walk we all began in, Father. But according to your word, Father, it is not the walk you would desire we remain in. Father, we can't get there in a day. We can't change our life in a moment. We must depend on you, Father, for that change. But we can take a step, and we may be sitting, Father, wondering what that step should be. We may not have a clear understanding of what to do next, of uh, what to change first, of whether we need to change. But, Father, we can trust in you to tell us that if we only listen. I trust, Father, that the Holy Spirit will direct each of us according to your will. And we know, Father, that if we're listening, you'll direct. If we're obeying, Father, you will bring the success you desire. I pray, I pray, Father, we won't be content to remain where we are. For no matter how far we've walked, Father, no matter how much fruit we believe we may be bearing, even now, there is so much more potentially available. There is so much more fruit necessary. So leave none of us content, Father. And then, Father, as we do respond, I pray the fruit would be evident. I pray we would see the result. Because, Father, we do know it, it is an encouragement to each of us to see fruit, to see the works we do glorifying you. And, Father, a little encouragement now and again, as you well know, 
can drive us to even greater things. And I pray for that encouragement, Father. I pray that you would send us signs that as we walk, we are doing your will. And then, Father, as always, we pray that there may be others who may join us. There may be others who may contribute to what we do, Father, making what we do better for ourselves and for your glory. We pray, Father, there would be others who would spread the word even as we try here in these meager ways. And in all things, bringing glory to you. And I pray, Father, you bring us back next week according to your will. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.